Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to filmmaker Lucy Walker, the director of Bring Your Own Brigade. Bring Your Own Brigade captures the horror and heroism of the deadliest week of wildfires in California history and explores the causes of this global fire crisis. The film is available to Paramount Plus subscribers for streaming and also can be seen for free on the CBSN app. Bring Your Own Brigade had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. It also screened at the Stockholm International Film Festival and was named to the Doc NYC Oscar shortlist. It was also named by both New York Times critics to their best movies of 2021 lists. Lucy Walker is an Emmy-winning and Oscar-nominated British filmmaker who lives in Venice, California. Her films include feature documentaries The Crash Reel, Wasteland, which was Oscar nominated, Countdown to Zero, Blindsight, and Devil's Playground. She also has directed short films, including The Tsunami and The Cherry Blossom, which was Oscar nominated, and The Lion's Mouth Opens. Having grown up and spent most of my entire life in California, wildfire is certainly something you think about, but there was so much in Lucy's film that I had no clue about. I learned a lot about the history of fire and firefighting in California and all the things we're doing wrong vis-a-vis -vis the National Park Service and its fire suppression practices. And I just think Lucy really manages to unspool this complicated issue, present multiple perspectives, give us lots of experts who are extremely lucid in their analysis of what's gone wrong and what we should be doing. She includes Native American tribal practitioners who have a lot to say about controlled burns that we need to listen to. And she has really important personal stories of people who survived the Camp Fire and the Woolsey Fire, the worst day of fires in California history. I'm sure you will agree with me that there's a lot here, a lot of important information and a very compelling story at its heart. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucy Walker, director of Bring Your Own Brigade. Lucy Walker, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Lucy, why do you make documentary films? Ah, oh, the question of my life. I think it's because it's the most interesting medium of my lifetime. The technology has evolved in the time that I've been working, but I feel like the reason docs are so good and so interesting right now is because they're kind of a fresh edge. Before this century, really, when you didn't have nonlinear editing and you really needed a kind of script, you couldn't really play around infinitely to craft a really incredible, exquisite, finely tuned story out of a pile of messy real life. You needed a script. So now we have nonlinear editing. We have cheap media. You can shoot a bunch of stuff and figure it out later, or you can bring in loads of stuff in archival and sort it all out without losing your mind. And we have these affordable cameras that give gorgeous image quality that will absolutely make your eyes water and great sound quality too. And you can do that in an affordable way. So I think we can now capture real life and real life people and real life stories and real life feelings in a way that in the last century, we needed a script and actors and costumes and all that stuff. And I was trained as a fiction filmmaker. I love movies. Don't get me wrong. You can be a script and some actors. and I'd totally be thrilled to direct it. And yet I do think that documentary is where it's at because this is the new medium. If Shakespeare was around today, I think he'd be doing docs, don't you think? I love that line and I love that thought. I can't argue with you there. I think he'd have a field day. 
Perhaps the most striking thing for me about Bring Your Own Brigade is how much of you is in the film. I've seen most of your films or many of your films. I am a big fan, by the way, but I can't recall ever seeing a film of yours with you in it to the extent that we do in Bring Your Own Brigade. In this film, often we hear you asking questions, talking with folks off camera, and occasionally we see you on camera. You have a strong personal presence in your narration. This begs the question, why did you decide to put yourself in this movie? Good question and good spot, because you're exactly right. I don't put myself in my films. In fact, I love hiding behind the camera and making everyone else go in front of the camera. And I think if I'm a good director, it's because I understand how terrifying and annoying and exposing it can be to be in front of the camera. So I don't do it willingly. And hopefully I'm helpful to other people who only do it when they've already got an important story to share. I felt when it came to this material, though, that the more I understood, the more my story was relevant. Because when we get deep into the story, it's about Europeans coming to California and mistaking it for Northern Europe, mistaking the climate, mistaking that their knowledge will still apply. And so I realized that my own journey as a Northern European moving to California really mirrored that because when I moved to California, I was confused by fire. I didn't understand why we couldn't just put these fires out and they scared me and I didn't understand this landscape and I mistook it for a sort of poorly controlled version of my home landscape. I'm a filmmaker who likes to let the material ask for what it needs to become the best film. I try not to have a one-size-fits-all approach when I make films. I try to let the material ask for what it needs, be different for me to, as a filmmaker, stretch myself and learn and grow and use the techniques that seem to make each different story as strong as it can be. So I always try to break my own rules and just approach each project freshly and openly and just think from first principles, what's the story? How do I tell it? How do I make the best possible documentary here? It was through looking at this material because it's a complicated subject and I didn't want to do anything boring. I wanted to do something that was really accurate, but also really good film. And that is hard. It, it was a hard subject. It was quite a, a challenge. I've made other films that were easier shapes to find in the edit or stories to tell that seemed more easy to figure out how to set up and pay off because I am a filmmaker that thinks in fact structure and screenplay structure and story structure. I am someone who really structures the films and really tries to have that kind of narrative satisfaction for the audience. And yet everything has to be completely you know, authentic and real. So I'm always working really hard for that. In this case, though, having my own voice and fessing up to my own ignorance and my revelation that this journey I was on was the same as some of the mistakes that had been made by European settlers in California. I think that seemed to be the most honest way to tell this story and the most effective. I took a little bit of time to persuade myself that it had to be done because I hate narrating and I, I hate the sound of my own voice. And I find the writing narration part really challenging. I'd much rather listen to people I'm filming who will come up with fantastic lines and, and then edit them to perfection rather than write my own lines. I always like to sort of let reality do the writing and for me just to do the capturing and the editing. But despite the challenge of it all, I didn't want to say no, though, because it was a challenge. I felt like I've got to rise to the challenge as a filmmaker. Yeah, it is funny that the film has got quite a lot of me in it. There's this moment 
where I put a shot of me in and we didn't actually mean to shoot me. It's just that the camera was rolling when it was pointed at a certain point. And I was sitting there in the front row of a town hall meeting just because I was there researching. And yet when we came to look at the dailies and as I do, I'm looking at the dailies of a scene and trying to figure out what's the best way to edit them together to make the strongest scene. Something really dramatic and fascinating and important happened in that town meeting. And as I tried to figure out how to convey that as I edited the scene, I realized that the look on my face was the most powerful shot we could use. And I didn't want to use it because I have a terrible sort of, you could say, resting bitch face. I mean, I really look I was off. I was going to say scowl, but I don't know. <laughs> scowl, yeah, exactly. And I was always concerned that people think that I'm a you know horrible person when I don't think I am at all. And I didn't want to use a shot where I look like I'm scowling because I think I'm a rather sweet and kind person. I'd much rather saw a smiley shot Again, you got to grow up and be a serious artist here and not a kind of insecure person. So yeah, I had to use that really, didn't I, when I thought about it. And so yes, I'm in there scowling and people may think I'm a terribly angry person. And in that moment, I was. And that's the point of the scene. I'm glad that you won that argument with yourself to put yourself in the film. The film is an inquiry. At one point, you say you vowed to get to the bottom of why these fires keep happening. And it made me wonder again about your process. Do you typically start out on a film project with one, pardon the pun, burning question that you need to get to the bottom of? Or was that, again, unique for this project? This project was, again, any rule I have, I perhaps break. And maybe that's not a terrible thing people say, oh, well, do you make documentaries? So you've no idea where they're going when you begin. And I sometimes in the past rather proudly have corrected them and said, no, I've known exactly where they're going to go. Take my film Wasteland. I had the idea for the art project that the film is based around. Not only did I know exactly where it was going, I came up with the whole idea and included that the artwork was going to be sold and that the money would go back to the people in the garbage dump who recycled by hand. That had been part of my very original idea that I'd had even before we'd started filming. There are times when I really have a whole plan. In this case, it was a little bit different. In this case, it did start out with a question about why is the hillside on fire and why can't we put the fires out? Am I safe here? What is going on with these fires? And I kept thinking, I didn't understand it. There was something wrong with the picture I had in my head because I clearly was missing something about what was going on. I thought it was just going to be about climate change and I wanted to get that connection about climate. I felt like I could accuse myself of going to exotic, faraway locations to make my films, to lend interest in my films. I've made films in Mongolia and Tibet and Japan and Brazil. I'm so grateful for those incredible experiences. I've passionately wanted to explore the world my whole life and sometimes think that there's the kind of broke girl in me that just can't believe my luck that I get to do a job that buys my plane ticket so I can go travel and explore and just roam with my curiosity about what's going on in the world for different people who are in faraway places. But I also felt like it was interesting to ask questions of my own environment and I thought if I'm going to make a climate change film, it would be interesting to just look at my own surroundings. So I started out from that place of curiosity. So I think what's true of all my films is that they have a question that's so burning, as to use your good pun, that I have to drop everything else to answer. Because making films takes me a lot of time and energy. And what drives me to do all that has to be really compelling. Because otherwise, gosh, there's so many other nice and relaxing things to do. In this case, I really did want to understand this 
landscape and environment that I'm in and my own role and relationship with climate change by turning the camera right on my own neighborhood, you could say, with California and an issue that was very close to home and threatening the people around me. Yet this one did take a bit of a turn. Originally, I thought I'd just make a short film about a particular fire, which at the time was the largest ever fire in California history, the Thomas Fire. And what's extraordinary is that was, gosh, was that three or four years ago now? And it's now the seventh largest fire in California history. So that shows you how many of these record-breakingly huge fires we've had since and how terrible it is that we keep breaking these records, right? So I started to make this film. It was originally going to be a short film. And I was struggling with it because I hadn't quite found it yet. I didn't want it to be salacious and horror and just show the horror of the fire because that wasn't the point. But on the other hand, if I did an inquiry into how climate change affects fires, then it was a really dry science lesson kind of a film. I didn't want to make that kind of film either. So I was really exploring what was going to be possible with this project and trying to figure out, could I turn this important subject into a film that was going to be good for the audience to watch. When these fires came along, and I felt like I had a little money in the bank and I had been researching it for months at this point. So I knew the questions to ask. I talked to a lot of people. I shot a lot of not very good footage and I was in deep on a subject when suddenly, unexpectedly, at the very end of fire season, in fact, right after fire season, suddenly these immense and terrible events happened. I felt like I was sitting in a field with a big bottle. Unexpectedly, a lightning strike came. And I thought, oh my gosh, I better just start filming. And as it happened, because I'd done all this research and had forged all these relationships and so forth, I was able to immediately call up firefighters that were going to the incidents. And I also knew how to get behind fire lines and what you can do in California and what to wear and how to behave and what questions to ask. You start the film with Brad in Paradise, who gives us a tour of his home, his property there, and he introduces you and by extension us to his mother, Norma. They do tell the story of how they think angels saved the house and kept them safe, which is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And periodically throughout the course of the film, you come back to Brad. I was just wondering what it was about Brad and his mother that kept you coming back over the course of really the entire film to the very end. I found his story fascinating for a few reasons. One is that instinctively, if there's a fire, I run away. I am not a person who stays in defense. And I found his story challenged my own assumptions. I do like getting him out of my own comfort zone. You know, you get to middle age and you kind of have your ideas about how things should get done. It's good to sort of have them challenged and questioned. And his story did give me pause because it was not what I would have done and then he doubles down on that and he has 20 or more of his fellow friends and townspeople to come stay in his little house after the fire because he knows so many people that have been displaced that he turns his home into a kind of welcome center for all his homeless friends who've lost their houses. And at one point there's dozens of dogs. It's like a bunch of babies and over 20 adults living in a bunch of RVs and, and outbuildings. And he's got his blind mom and his sister with dementia living with him. I was so impressed with that. And yet his politics were very different than mine. There was a lot of guns and dogs and talk of President Trump. I was out of my kind of bubble politically. So there was a lot to ponder because he was such a great person and there was all these 
things I so admired. I was able to talk with him about politics and climate change and what he thought was going on with the fire. And it was a conversation that I think is quite rare in this moment, something that's a threatened type of conversation because we're becoming so polarized in our views. And I think that we're just not connecting in deep and nuanced ways often with people who who have different political views in ourselves. And the story with his life just kept changing, right? So just from a story point of view, what I liked was, spoiler alert, but he first breaks down with me talking about how he built his house for his wife who'd passed away three years earlier, and he's clearly still grieving for her. That's why he won't leave the house. He'd rather die than leave that house because it reminds him of her. And by the end of the movie, he's fallen in love and then gets married to someone else and absolutely genuinely and convincingly because of the fire. And he has lost his mom. His mom has died of natural causes. What I loved about that story was for me, it spoke of this big possibility of human renewal that in the face of loss and destruction, that nature's way is always to creativity and resilience and new growth and new future, a beautiful, bright, hopeful, loving future. There was something for me so healing about that. It was like the flowers that came up out of the ash after the fire, the creative destruction, the forces of nature that will continue. And I thought that was a big story reflected in his personal story that is hopeful is just this sort of a personal post-fire phoenix rising from the ashes love story that from a narrative point of view I thought guided the way as the film investigative kind of scenes into the nature of the film and we followed the town and it's also a way of being in love with those characters because at the same time what's going on with the investigation is that you realize that people like Brad and his buddies are opposing all the initiatives to prevent fires happening in the future. So you hold this balance of the kind of frailty of humans, what we're capable of as humans. Brad is a person who does a lot of things I don't agree with. (laughs) And yet he's clearly a magnificent and loving man. And I think that for me is so much about human nature and how I feel about our fellow humans. Your comments about his story being a story of hope and renewal makes me think of another person we meet in the film who is a woman who's going back to her house that has burned down in the campfire. She takes you on a tour of the rooms that used to be there, the furniture that was in those rooms. Understandably, she's very upset. The scene stands on its own, but Was there something else that you hope to convey to people by showing what she's showing us and what little is left of her home, which is basically nothing? For me, it was an inquiry into our relationship with stuff. There's a lot of different opinions in there. And what I liked about this inquiry, as you call it, that's a great word, is that it was not boring. There was a lot to it. It was very nuanced and it kept giving me more food for thought. When the fire comes through, it sort of burns a lot away and it reveals a lot about humans and how we live and what's important in our lives and where do we go and how do we cope and what things matter to us. These are all questions that really tell us a lot about how we organize our lives, take care of ourselves and each other. She is devastated and she has a great line. She says, I know it's just stuff, but it's my stuff. And that scene talks to a few other scenes in the film. There's a wonderful, very acclaimed writer, Pico Iyer, 
who talks about how he lost his stuff in a fire. And it was all the stuff that he couldn't replace that was meaningful. It was his notebooks as a writer. And yet, actually, that fire turned out to be the making of him because he moved to Japan because he didn't have any stuff anymore. So he was free to move to Japan where he didn't have needed a lot of storage space or a big house. And that's how they live in Japan. And he didn't write up the old notes. He sort of was plunged freshly into the moment. And he quotes this beautiful haiku. But just when you think that stuff might weigh you down, there's another wonderful person we meet called Thor who has a heartbreaking story. He's a kind of simple poet of a man. He's just this fantastic guy. And you think he's going to say he doesn't need stuff, but actually has the reverse thing. He had a brain injury. And for him, stuff helped him get his memories back. That stuff was kind of the external keys to his memory and his identity. Without access to his stuff, he wouldn't have known who he was. You kind of realize it's easy to say, oh, it's just stuff, but actually it isn't. We outsource our identity into these objects and you might lose them and need that one day. So that was very interesting. And then we meet another wonderful survivor of the Malibu fire, Jamie Brissick, a writer as well. And he talks about the things that he lost that were very meaningful to him and his father who just passed away and his memoirs of his late wife. You start to think about what stuff does mean things. So for me, it was a real inquiry into how we live. But it was also astounding because we do live in a way where we're walled into our homes with our belongings. And when they've gone, there is also something very euphoric and liberating and connecting. I certainly felt like those stories were just as important or more so than the stories of the experts. But the experts that you found also, I felt, spoke personally and in ways that we could relate to. So it was great to see the mix of those kinds of stories in one film. I wanted to go back to November 8, 2018, which is the day of the campfire in Northern California, which started in Concow and spreads to Paradise. And then later we have the Woolsey Fire in Malibu. You're embedding with firefighters on that day, correct? Exactly, yeah. We see you at one point and we hear you. Can you tell us a bit more about just that day and those days and where you were and how does one possibly cover fire? It's just such a massive event. In fact, I was not in paradise that day. It was a bit of time to get up there. And there was also the Malibu fire. So I was not in paradise, I should say, on November 8th. What we do have, though, is a lot of footage of the people who were residents and firefighters. So typically in the days following when I was there, I would meet all these people and they had shot their experiences on their iPhones or smartphones, I should say, and would airdrop me their material. Or some people also Facebook Live did or had put it on YouTube even or something like that. So there was a lot of material that people had shot that were in the incident, both residents and firefighters did a lot of shooting. So that was just a massive operation to look through all that material, which was extraordinarily traumatic, as were the 911 calls and the radio traffic. So we filed freedom of information requests, a lot of them with different agencies, and we were able to get the 911 call logs and listen to the 911 calls, which is super revealing of how things actually go down in those incidents how fast they move and how, you know, the information is not perfect. People are really operating sort of in the fog of war, you could say, those fires that move so quickly. It, it was just fascinating to listen to the calls, again, knowing their exact addresses and knowing exactly the timeline down to the minutes of which firefighters knew what by when. And 
So really understanding what exactly happened forensically over the course of the minutes and the hours during those incidents and where people died and hearing some of the people that died make the 911 calls that were their last calls. So it was extremely harrowing to go through that material, but it was important and revealing. There was also the radio traffic. So you really hear the responders, amazing responders. If I started out, by the way, impressed with first responders, it only grew, you know, exponentially and every single day. Just, it was just, just unbelievable how grateful I am to the responders who just take on so much. They take it for the team, for the rest of us. They do so much to keep us safe and in the worst imaginable situations. You were with a first responder covering the the Woolsey fire. Yeah, so I got into the Woolsey incident and then later into Paradise. I say Paradise, but really that's the code word for that whole area because it wasn't just Paradise. It was a whole area of Butte County. Yes, so I was sometimes riding along fire department. I didn't ride along with the police, but riding along with firefighters and also just driving around, which you can do in California. In other states, you need to be responded to get behind fire lines. But in California, as a journalist, you can go behind fire lines. And so we were able to go and also meet survivors like Brad, who were behind the cordons and there with their homes still. So able to meet people like that. And there were also in Malibu, a ton of people who'd stay to defend their homes, meet those people and film with them, see the immediate Aftermath and also see when it was still burning. It was confronting to be at all close to the fire. I found it very frightening. Something that's seemingly much less dramatic, but actually is incredibly compelling in your film, are these two city hall meetings, the one in Paradise and the one in Malibu. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I never thought city council meetings could be that compelling, but they are. Let's take the Malibu one for a second. There's a lot of blaming of firefighters in that meeting. Where were they? They weren't here. Then you later interview a firefighter. He actually shows a lot of, I think, sensitivity to that response and basically says, you know, Mm -hmm. anger is one stage of grief. You have to let people grieve the loss of their homes. But I wanted to get your take on this idea of blaming. I guess the bigger question is, how can we move from blaming to taking responsibility to taking action in California? Uh, Such a good question. That's exactly right. And that is the question, isn't it? I think we are, and I think often the media scape makes us think that's what we're supposed to be doing, pointing the fingers, feeling litigious, who's to blame. The film really tries to get past that and raise our awareness up to what's going on really. For me, it was very strong experience because I have a lot of friends as well that live in Malibu who have very strong conviction that they were let down by the firefighters that day. And in good faith, I really considered that point of view. And there were, you know, mistakes made. It's not that the firefighters were perfect by any means, but it's also true that when an incident like that happens, you can't fight a fire in any way that the public kind of imagines. And by the way, if we tried, we would be killing half the firefighters in Los Angeles County every year. Is that really what the Balboa residents are expecting? Because they may want to risk their life for their home, but do they expect firefighters to do that for them routinely in their day jobs? I thought that there might be some validity to these arguments that the firefighters contributed to the destruction in this incident. Instead, I uncovered lots of other things. I uncovered that there were private firefighters and the private firefighters, which are becoming increasingly popular in Malibu, which are fire brigades that are hired by individual homeowners or their insurance companies, will not go to other residences. So if you're trying to get 
one of those fire trucks to come to your house, they're not going to do that because they've been hired by someone else. They're not working for everybody. They're working for specific customers. It was fascinating to be in this town hall and feel the extent to which people who were living in these areas that burn repeatedly. Malibu is incredibly smart, incredibly affluent, incredibly proactive and progressive, enlightened place. And yet these residents were often really ill-informed about the fires because it is quite counterintuitive. And that's it's actually exactly what I wanted to make the film because the information is not commonly understood and it is surprising to people and it's not what people expect, like the residents that we see in the fires. I wasn't informed to be making good decisions. And you really see that play out in the town hall meeting. And I get it, I totally relate. I have friends who hold those beliefs too. So it was really fascinating to just to watch all that drama and tension and conflict of visceral, the close to home sort of stuff. It, it was hard though to listen to people criticizing the firefighters because when you've ridden along with them and you see what they go through and you see the trauma that they take on board and you understand the PTSD that they're suffering and the suicides amongst the first responders and the toll it takes on their families that they're out there and the horrors it inflicts on their bodies even to be doing these shifts that are 30 hour shifts or 70 day shifts in the back woods out of cell service even when they've got young kids at home or whatnot. I mean, you just realize what they're doing and you realize that climate change is here. It's making these things worse. It's not the only factor. In fact, we really separate that out in the film from the factors that we can control. And it's really good news because it's actually stuff that we can do to control it. But well, the, well, let's can we get to yeah. that? Because I okay, think sure, yeah. the, the other city council meeting, the one in Paradise, is a situation where real solutions seem to be proposed for that town. And we see the response to that. So just to paint the picture for the audience real quick, there's a couple of things. One, first, we hear the mayor of Paradise, Jody Jones, making the point that homes that were built after fire standards were put in place 10 years ago, a majority of them actually survived the campfire. But most of those built prior to those standards did not survive. So that's, I think, a very compelling data point. Then we go to the city council meeting and there's a presentation about new fire safety standards that are being proposed. Frankly, they all seem very well reasoned and practical. People like in many meetings are invited to come up and put their green or red dots next to ideas they like or don't like. And what we see is that a lot of red dots start appearing next to these ideas. And then eventually none of the standards are adopted by the council. I believe this is the meeting where we see you in the in Yes, the that's audience. right. <laughs> so that's exactly right. To take us through your own realization after those votes where nothing is going to be done about whether there's any solutions that are going to be implemented that are going to change things or we're just going to go down the same road again. Exactly. For me, it was you're making a documentary and you're following a story and you're trying to do your due diligence, but you don't know. I'm not a clairvoyant psychic person, so I didn't know what was going to turn out to be important in hindsight i was just doing what i vowed to do which was get to the bottom of this leave no stone unturned and if people told me something i take it on face value and in good faith investigate it and say was that true was that a cause of the fire was that why people died and try to really investigate it and in some cases that led me to some really interesting avenues that i hadn't read about like the role of logging for example and in other cases it led me to do things like attend town council meetings, which sound a little bit boring. And I don't, I confess, go to too many of them, even in my own community. 
sometimes listen to them on the radio. That's what we can do around here. This is all stuff that I find very commendable, but I, I wasn't sure it was going to be very interesting for the film. I just was really just trying to understand this community and get to know people. And it was just me doing my homework, really, was going to these town council meetings. Because we're all in one vehicle with me and the camera and the sound person, I, I made them come too. And then I thought, well, let's film them because it's interesting, somewhat interesting. I wasn't expecting it to be quite so important and interesting, though, but I happened to be there. And then I happened to be thinking, oh, no, this is the heart of the story. This is how died. I hate to say this because it's distressing and brutal, but it, it's a very distressing and brutal way to die. These things keep happening because it's really hard to make change. And if this community, which 86 people died, you're very aware about, it's a really hard situation, very traumatic for everybody involved, a fire. It's just not what you'd wish on anyone. We know there's a reason why when we came up with the idea of hell in the Christian imagination, it was imagined as a fiery hell pit because it's the most unpleasant thing that human imagination can conjure up is exactly what happened in this town. And so you would think that this town would be highly incentivized to prevent it or mitigate it because these areas burn all the time. And that's something else I learned. This wasn't a freaky thing. This is actually how the landscape breathes and the way that the winds work and the hills work and the seasons and the times of day and the times of year work, there are going to be times when these very ferocious winds at the same time as there's going to be sparks. And even if we all obey Spooky the Bear and there's nobody with a careless match, you can still have dry lightning. There's no way to stop these fires from happening. And Paradise has already had fires in November 8, 2018. Most of our characters were evacuated for a large chunk of last summer as well. There was another fire the summer before that came and both of those fires killed over 20 people and more homes lost in that new county exact area. These fires happen all the time. Our characters had lost homes about every 10 years during their life you actually came to learn. So you'd think that this town would be very motivated to stop such a terrible thing happening again. And then to see the vote not go in that direction was really shocking. And it does remind me a lot of how, because I'm a kind of vaccinated type person, and I go with the science on vaccinations as I go with the science on climate change. And for me, if I don't want to die from COVID-19, for example, I'm happy to go get vaccinated. In fact, I was delighted and thrilled and like first in line when it came to be my turn to get my vaccine. But I think what we've been learning is that there are a lot of people who might die if they don't get the vaccine and they are unlucky enough to get the COVID, but they sort of want the vaccine. And I think that's a kind of mindset that you also see in the town council meeting with fire. So there's also an interesting analogy, I think, for this current moment is understanding how people often don't act in their own best interest and how that makes an issue like climate change incredibly hard to deal with because climate change is such a big, complicated issue that requires so many people to come together and make change. And it's human beings were just spectacularly bad at it. So I think that was very revealing of that. And I had set out thinking when I made this film that it was going to be my film about climate change, if you like. And then I went through a whole stage of learning that it wasn't actually about climate change. Yes, climate change was certainly exacerbating these fires. It was what you might call a performance enhancer, as somebody memorably says. But it was not actually the driving course of these fires. This fire crisis that we're in would have 
been happening whether or not we were in a moment of climate change. And so I thought, okay, well, it's not really a climate change film. But then by the end of the journey of making it, I realized that actually in a much more profound and interesting way than I first imagined, it was absolutely a climate change film because it came to be about why we're in the pickle that we're in with the climate. Because it's about how us funny human beings, us funny fire creatures, as one of our contributors says, we're funny fire creatures. And we are funny fire creatures. And so we're terrible at this stuff. But I do think that the first step to hopefully doing something about it is realizing how terrible we are and realizing that we're up against funky human psychology here. So for me, it was very revealing stuff. And the town council meetings is where that really erupts. It does. And I think it was really important to show that and to see how hard change is. It's not going to happen with one vote. It's not going to happen even after one fire, as horrific as that fire was. It's going to take a lot. I want to ask one more question, which is uh, you start the film by saying it isn't the story I expected to be telling. I expected heroism and I found even more. But what I hadn't expected was hope because we can do something about this problem. And I wanted to connect that to the last part of the film in which you talk to a number of Native American tribal practitioners who talk mm -hmm. about the tradition and the strategic use by Native Americans of controlled burns, which are also, I think, called cultural burns. The hope that I wanted to highlight is we're in the new year, 2022, and there is a new law in California that regards controlled burns and cultural burns, which basically says that no one can be held financially liable for the costs of putting out a prescribed fire caused by them if certain circumstances apply, which includes cultural burning and control burning for the purpose of burning away existing wildfire hazards. That's a mouthful, but basically what it said to me is there's some hope here in that the state of California got it together, passed this law, and maybe it's a small thing, but it feels like a step in the right direction and a step toward hope. What are your feelings these days about feeling hopeful about our ability to make a difference here and go on a different path than we have been? I completely agree. And I'm so glad you highlighted that and land on that. Yes, that's exactly right. I did a panel recently with some of the wonderful contributors to our film. So it happened that because of the way the time and date for the panel worked out, all of the three people on the panel with me were Native American cultural practitioners and so knowledgeable and so eloquent. And I just sh shut up on this panel, listen to these three awesome Native American fire experts. Frankly, I felt really proud because I was like, I must be doing something right if I'm giving a microphone to these incredibly brilliant people. I've looked at this problem from every different angle. This is the solution that you come to that was there all along under our feet. It does seem to be a moment where finally this ancient wisdom, ancient technology is being listened to because we are in such a jam and it is the most skillful means that we have. And it is through this tireless work of some incredible people that we have these practices. We're so lucky that these people are brilliant and persisting and doing this incredible work, which has been incredibly difficult because as you point out, there's been all these issues with the prescribed burnings, cultural burning of liability and cost. We don't like fire because back to me being Northern European, prejudice against what fire should be put out. So every little fire that we've been having, there's a rule even, it's called the 10 a.m. rule, that it has to be put out immediately because that seems to be like what would control fire. But ultimately, because California is so productive that if you don't allow little burns, you're going to be just stacking up that trouble and get these roaring, overwhelmingly 
hot burns, the kinds of enormous fires that even burn down the ultimate fire adapted species, like these giant redwoods and these ancient, beautiful trees that are fire adapted. Their cones don't even open until fire comes along and melts the sap and, and that's how they reproduce. So the, even these species that are adapted to fire have been dying in recent fires. I, I, if you remember last summer, there were these extraordinary images of what I call aluminium, because I'm from England, aluminum foil wrapped, like foil, metal foil wrapped around giant trees that have lived for thousands of years. So why are we like having to wrap them up these days when a fire comes through? Well, it's because the fires are burning hotter. And why is that? Because we're putting out all these little fires with the idea that's the way to keep fire out of the forest. Smokey the bear, you know, fire is bad. But actually, Native Americans have a practice of setting fire regularly knowing that there's a good kind of fire that's actually your friend. There's a great story that I learned that when the very first Europeans sailed up to the coast of California around to where Los Angeles is now, they called it the Bay of Smoke because it was all on fire. Fire has always been here as long as the Europeans have been here and before that too. And so I love that this solution was here. And I also felt back to this kind of personal journey for me as a European to put myself in the story and a bit my own ignorance to this land that I'm in and learn about the wisdom and experience of the Native American practitioners that are here. It also felt to me part of this important moment of racial reckoning in this country and looking at our own role. I like to think of myself as a very cool and progressive type person, but always want to challenge myself to think more deeply about my own cultural prejudices and my own misunderstandings. And it was just a joy to meet these incredible Native American people and learn how much skill and knowledge about fire has been repressed. And I didn't know even the history of California and the terrible genocide. And I just learned so much about the history of California that I feel like I should have known before as a resident. So for me, it was an incredible personal journey. I'm very grateful to have gone on to make this film. I learned so, so much. I don't know if you're supposed to make films to go on personal learning journeys, but I felt very grateful that I was able to with this one and grateful if other people appreciate taking that journey with me and learning so much. It does give me a lot of hope that there are approaches to this fire that we can implement. And I think we are starting to. I think this is really changing in the last few years. We're realizing that the ways we've been trying to fight these fires are absolutely not working. And I do think that message is coming through. And I do think that the film has got these solutions in it that are being heard. That really does give me hope. I know that I learned a ton from your film, and it certainly made me think that this is a film that should be brought into schools in California and throughout the country, because there is so much of our own state history that we don't know. There are many lessons to be learned, and there are also solutions, as you indicate. We don't need to feel hopeless, but we do need to educate ourselves. And I think your film, in a very engaging way, provides a real service by giving us that historical background and these expert testimonials, as well as the people who have lived through these fires, that we can use as a basis to move forward. We'd love to know what's up next for you. What can I say? I can say that I have been very interested in the therapeutic niches of psychedelic medicines. I have a couple of projects I've been working on in that space, which is a subject I've been fascinated with since I was a teenager. Wow, fantastic. Can't wait to hear more. Lucy, congratulations on the film, and thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, I so enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions. I was very long-winded in my answers. It's a, it's a tough film to be succinct about, so thank you so much for humoring my very long answers and for asking such good questions. Thanks a lot, Lucy. Thank Take you care. so much. Yeah, bye-bye.
you have a hidden gem, a film you've seen in the past or even more recently that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Oh my goodness, there are so many films that have inspired me over the years. The film I often talk about is Streetwise, 1984, a film about homeless teenagers in Seattle. But I've mentioned that before, so I was just thinking about other things that might be a little more surprising. And I'm just going to give a random shout out to The Farm, Liz Galbus and Jonathan Stack's 1998 look at Louisiana's biggest maximum security penitentiary, Angola. That is a film I was thinking about recently that I thought was just beautiful and was chatting to Liz about how inspired I'd been by that film at the time. And gosh, there are so many. You know, I can't pick one. There's too many. I'm inspired by the work of so many filmmakers right now. And I'm just so thrilled that there's so much brilliant work going on in documentary. 